We continue with the study of Romans 12, verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. And we continue on a slight detour of this aspect of love, with this aspect of love. We've presented a few lessons about it. We continue with that today. I I feel that we maybe have two or three more lessons before we move on with Romans chapter 12. I think that it's easy to justify that love is such an important, if not the most important issue that we find in the Bible. If one were to be asked, what is the most important thing in the Bible? We might respond, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But was it not love that put him there? We might say that it perhaps was the creative process in Genesis chapter 1, but was it not love that motivated God to create the universe and give us all that we enjoy in this world? We might talk about the uh, the flood in the days of Noah. But again, was it not God's love and even his anger towards sin uh, that motivated him in dealing with the people of the earth at that time in that particular way. We might look at various other stories, maybe events in people's lives, but at the very core of everything that we go on about in the Bible, everything that we read about in the Bible, everything that we consider in Scripture, we arrive at the conclusion that love is at the very heart of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. First John a book that over and over and over again emphasizes the importance of love amongst the brethren. Second John, third John, which we'll go to today in our study, identifying at the very beginning of each of those letters the significance of love in the lives of people. We call ourselves the Church of Christ. And if we are to be identified as the Church of Christ, then surely love must be the marker in our hearts and it says to all and sundry that we are God's people. I remember when I was in the United States in 1997, I had an infection of the cartilage in the breastbone. The reason we have cartilage in our breastbone, God being all wise and all powerful, is because when you breathe, your rib cage expands and contracts accordingly. And I look towards Ruth for confirmation, because Ruth is a nurse and will no doubt correct any anatomical mistakes that I make on this given Sunday. Derek's up to this week and focus on Ruth this time. But I had an infection in that. And the problem was that as the rib cage moved, as it expanded and contracted, it was searing pain. It was incredibly painful. It was so painful that Dick Savage, who was with me, thought it was funny. That's how sore it was. And he would laugh every time I breathed. And so I had this problem of which was more painful, inhaling or not breathing at all. And after about 30 or 40 seconds, I had to start breathing again because I started getting dizzy and the lights would start getting dim. Uh, but such was the pain that I just didn't want to do it. So Dick takes me, and Elizabeth was with me at the time. Joshua was just a, a few weeks old at the time, traveling with us. And we loaded up in the car, and Dick took us down to the hospital there in Huntsville. We went into the hospital, and they took me into what they call ER. And George Clooney wasn't there, but they sat me down in the gurney, I guess we would call it. And they came in, and they stuck a little thing in my finger. It was like a little clip. And they just stuck it over my finger. And I'd never seen this before. I'd never been that ill before. I'd never felt that ill before. And they stuck this little thing in my finger, and they went away, and they came back, and they were monitoring it. They thought I was having a heart attack. It felt, I don't know what a heart attack feels like, it felt like a heart attack, except for the arm, the arms were fine. But it just was incredibly painful. And this little device was measuring what they called the O2. It was just seeing how much oxygen was in the blood. And it was up at about 98 or 99, I think it was about 99 if I remember correctly. 
And I said to the guy, is that good? It's been a long time since I got 99 out of 100 for anything. And he looked at me and went, no, that's great, that's, that's fine. He said, what's that about? And he said, well, that's just measuring how much oxygen's in your blood. Because when you breathe, your lungs transfer oxygen to the heart. The heart turns that into the red blood cells, I guess. And the red blood cells are pumped through the body. And if they reach your fingers and you've got high oxygen content, then your cardiovascular system's working really well. I said, what would be really bad? He said, 97. I said, right, so basically anything less than 97 is a fail. It's pretty much. If I go, somebody I was talking to recently, Adam might remember, I don't even know if Adam was there, and theirs was like 88 or 89. And the doctor was in a panic. And he said, no, it's okay, it's always like that. And sure enough, it was. Apparently, they, they have this kind of problem, I don't know what it is, but they live a normal and healthy life. I can't, I can't think who it was at the time. Oxygen is critical to our life. Oxygen is essential to our lifestyle. When I left uh, Scotland in 1989, I was, I was told, well, Florida, it's not heat, it's the humidity. Well, he'll tell you, he went to Arkansas. Uh, at least there it's, it stops during the winter. But I was in Arkansas in July of 91, met Ronnie and Mary there, but they were studying. It's not the heat, it's the humidity, isn't it? I mean, it's stiflingly hot. And one of the things that you notice is, it's very hard to breathe in such, su- such heavy humidity, which would be about 80 to 85%. There was a, a thing on the BBC just last week, I think it's something like How the Earth Was Made or something. It was on BBC Two Tuesday night, very late Tuesday night. I only saw about 10 minutes of it. But I watched it because there's a magnificent crystal cave uh, in Mexico that was discovered by accident. And when I talk about crystals, I'm talking about crystals that are like this wide across and about 40 feet long. It was magnificent to behold. But the guy said it's almost impossible to visit this place. Not because of where it is, but because when you're in there, the humidity is 50 degrees Celsius. And the humidity is 100%. The temperature is stiflingly hot. But there's so much moisture in there, you would be dead in about 15 minutes. Because... The coolest place in the cave is on the inside of your lungs. And so when you breathe in, the oxygen or the air that you've just inhaled condenses inside your body and your lungs begin to fill up with fluid. And you can die in about, after 10 minutes, you'd be very seriously ill. So they have to wear oxygen masks. And he took his off to explain all this. And after a few minutes, had to put it back on because he'd become so seriously ill. There's something about atmosphere. It's just essential to human life. A party without an atmosphere is just not a place you want to stay. A place without any atmosphere is a place where you're going to die. And love has to be the very atmosphere of the Christian's life. Love has to be as important as our next breath of air. As certainly as we will die without air, as certainly as we will die in an area where the atmosphere is of a poor content, we will die as Christians if love is not at the very atmosphere of our lives as Christians. In 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 14, Paul says, Let all that you, be, all that you do be done with love. The word all there is the word pass in Greek. Here it's translated as panta, which is a plural, a plural neuter form of that. Which is just another way of saying everything, without exception, 
all things. We use this, for example, if we talk about pantheism, this is where the word comes, how we use the word in English. It's the idea of all things are God. Um, sort of common within Hinduism, for example. When we talk about a pandemic in medical terms, we're talking about a disease that has gone globally. It's affecting everyone on the earth. The Spanish flu of 1919, 1920, that murdered about, uh, that took the lives of about a quarter of the earth's population, I believe. And during that time, more people died of the flu after World War One than actually died as a consequence of World War One. Um, it was a pandemic. Everywhere in the world was affected by that one thing. Everything that we do has to be done out of love. Every relationship that we have has to have love at its very core. Every friendship that we have has to have love at its very core. Every enemy that we have, we have to treat with love. Everything that we do, every action that we pursue, everything that involves our lives as Christians, Paul says, let love be at the very heart of it. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4 to the church there in, in Asia, Asia Minor, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. And it's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 14. Which Christians did the Colossians love? Paul says, We have heard of your love for all Christians. Anyone who is a Christian, Colossae, you love them. Anyone who wears the name of Christ, you love them. If they're strong in the faith, if they're like Paul and missionaries and going out, if they're like Timothy and taking the word of God forward, if they're like Silas and others like Luke who went on those mission trips, they love those men. But they probably would have loved Diotrephes. Much later in the Gospels, much later in the stories, when we come to 3 John and we encounter Diotrephes, the Colossians would have had love for him. But it would have been a love that would have sought his repentance, a love that would have sought his correction, a love that would have sought him to become right with Christ, because Paul condemned them for his actions. And they would have done what they could to make a difference in his life. If it would have been Alexander and Hymenus, if they were Christians at least in the context of Colossians 1.4, if they were the ones who, if they were shipwrecking the faith of some within the church, as members of the church, they would have had love for those people, but they would have sought to correct them, they would have sought to change them. If there were backsliders, those who were failing in their Christian life, or struggling in their Christian life, or as the Hebrew writer put it in chapter 12, those who were weak-kneed and feeble-minded or feeble-handed, Paul would say to the Colossians, love them. We know of your love for them, to strengthen them and to encourage them. Because love is what identifies us as the people of God. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul says of the church there in Thessalonica, We remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. They knew it because they knew they were of the elect of God, saved by what God had done. And the Thessalonian church's reputation had spread through all the region of Achaia, through all the cities that surrounded Thessalonica. If you look at a map, I don't know if Adam went to Saloniki when he was in, in Greece, you were there? You were in Athens, weren't you? If you go to Saloniki, it's, on a, it's a major port, it's on a major river that flows north into Macedonia and to the former Yugoslavia. And everything goes through Thessalonica in that particular area. If you're trading, you end up in Thessalonica. If you're traveling, you end up in Thessalonica. 
you want to go to Turkey from Athens, you have to go through Thessalonica. If you want to go and, and watch Scotland play Macedonia in the World Cup qualifying groups, if we're playing them, then if you're travelling by boat, you'd have to go through Thessalonica. Don't know why you'd want to travel there by boat, it's an awful long distance, but you'd have to go through Thessalonica. Strategically, Paul placed the church there. But anyone that ever went to Thessalonica and came in contact with the church would say, you know that these people love God. You know that these people, more importantly, or as important, have love for one another. You see, man's love for man has to be identified by what God has told us what love is. And our love for a fellow man can only be understood by the love that we demonstrate towards one another. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love. That you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. We've been blessed in the last week that Morris and Polly have elected to place membership to be identified as members of the congregation here in Cumbernauld. They're not here, as Adam will announce, they've gone to South Africa. They're away there for three weeks. But I'm convinced that part of their reason for choosing to worship in Cumbernauld is they've been with us, they've worshipped with us, and they have testified, if to nobody else, certainly to themselves, of our faith and love. Let's be honest. We don't hang around with people that we don't like. We don't spend much time of company in, or much time in the company of those that annoy us and dislike and that we dislike because of various factors but people that we love people that we care about people that we're invested in or people who in turn invest in us surely we want to spend more time with them Paul says that of the Thessalonians they were recognized for their love in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3 we are bound to thank God always for you brethren as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other and there's that word pass again there's that without exception everyone in the Thessalonian church was identified by Paul singled out as a collective even if that makes sense as being worthy of this acknowledgement of everyone in the congregation as a person of love They treat one another with love. They are understanding what love means and they are employing it in their daily life. So, if Paul would praise the Thessalonian church for that behaviour, does it not behove us in trying to emulate the church of the first century and trying to become the Christians as we identify in Scripture? It's trying to be the church that Jesus has called us to be, to be a church of love. To be a church that are known and understood to be that kind of people. In Ephesians 5 verse 2, a book that deals a lot with the church, a book that identifies the love that the church has to, has to have as its very being, says, walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Walk in love. Christ has demonstrated what love is. Therefore, walk in it. This expression which occurs frequently in the New Testament of walking is the idea of a manner of life. A particular way of going about every aspect of what you do and who you are. I remember having a pen pal in high school from London, Ontario, Kelly McLeod, now married to an Englishman, Kelly, no, Kelly Rushton's now her name. And, and she had a grandfather who was from Greenock. Or 
Lord for Glasgow. But you get he's from Inverclyde, let's believe it at that. And he, and he left Glasgow in the 1930s or 40s when he was just a boy, when he was probably a little bit late than that, but when he was maybe Jordan's age. You know, 12 years old, maybe a little younger, something like that. Off he goes to Canada with his family, starts a new lifestyle. He has a son called Sam, he has a granddaughter called Kelly, you see how this develops. And he came back to Scotland, and Kelly said to him, when you go back, go visit my pen pal Graham. Go say hello to Graham for me. Get a photograph with Graham. I just want you to do it, because we had a good friendship back then. And so our grandfather and his and our grandmother came to visit us. And he was telling us that when he went back, every year, he came back occasionally, but he went back uh, to Port Glasgow, I think it was. And when he was visiting there, somebody in one of the tenements shouted down his name. I can't remember what his name was, but he shouted down his name, McLeod, is that you? And he's in his 70s, he's retired, and he looked up. Uh, yes, it's me. So the woman hur- hur- you know, hurried down the stairs, with the same age as him, and she starts talking to him. I knew it was you. Who are you? Oh, whatever her name was, Senga. You know, have you seen you for 60 years? Everyone's called Senga, in the tenement something. And he went down, and they, they started talking. We used to play together. You grew up here. I said, that's right. This is, I lived in that tenement there. And we used to play. And, we, and he said, I remember you. How did you know it was me? I'm old. I'm grey. I don't have as much hair as I used to have. I hardly any. She says, I recognised your walk. He had a wee click of his heel. And she remembered it after 15, 16 years or something like that. Do you know, if people can recognise each other by those little anomalies of who and what we are, if we can hear somebody saying super good and getting better and know exactly who said it, if we can be recognised by those characteristics, what about the love that we have for one another? How much more will it speak of our life, of our faith in Christ Jesus? In Revelation 2 and verse 19, speaking to the church in Thyatira, Jesus says, I know your works. I know your love. I know your service. I know your faith. And I know your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. When Jesus opens up his book, perhaps he does this periodically, perhaps to have the book of life as like a, a photo album, and he just visits it uh, frequently and just has a look at people, and he'll look at it and he'll say, There's Mary. Ah, Mary. I know her love. I know her works. I know her labor for me. I know what her service is like. It's Nicola. Look at Nicola. Look how well she's doing. Maybe makes a few notes. Maybe just takes a little pride in a member of his family, in a member of his congregation, because he is invested and he knows that we are his people because of the love that we have for one another. When our children have a birthday, they invariably ask, where's the badge? And they wear that badge. And it says, I'm 10 or I'm 12 or I'm 6 or whatever it has been in times past. When I've been here on Sunday mornings, people have gone, what does your badge say? I'll sort of drag it over and try and read the wee tiny writing that's on it. Love is supposed to be our badge. It's supposed to be our, our identifying mark. Forget this, my name is Graham. Let it be said, my name is Love. Let it be said, I am that person. Let that identify me as belonging to this Christian fellowship. Let it identify me as not only be belonging to this family, 
but an active participant in the goodness of what this family is. If there is bitterness and strife in our fellowship, we may call ourselves a church of men, but we can never call ourselves the church of Christ. Bitterness and strife destroys the atmosphere. It destroys the Christian life. Some of us will remember what happened when there was that chemical disaster in Bhopal in India. Seems like it wasn't that long ago that they had the 25th anniversary. Some American company had a chemical plant there in the 1980s and there was an accident and all the chemicals were spewed out and everybody was in the area of Bhopal was poisoned by this and it caused all sorts of anomalies. Children were born. Many of us will remember the thalidomide cases of the, of the early 1970s and still see the consequences of that. And people my age, my age group, my generation, um, holding in their, in their arms and in their limbs the consequences of a poison that came into their life. Bitterness and strife kills. It destroys, it weakens, it pollutes. It's no different from that disaster that happened in India. It will destroy and wreck our fellowship. It will make us unrecognizable as a church. So let love create a pure atmosphere for the people of God. Love is also that by which the church is to be built up. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul discusses all the things that are involved in equipping the saints and edifying the church and building the church up. That's what edifying means. It means to build up, to encourage, uh, to exhort. All that's involved in it at the very heart again is love. In verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Love makes us who we are. Makes us what we are. Influences the things that we see, the things that we think, the things that we do. The relationships that we have, the companionship that we keep, the partners that we choose for ourselves in life, the friends that are dear to us. Love is at the very heart of it. It's at the very heart of our worship, the very heart of our Christian service, the very heart of our spirit of volunteerism, whether it be the Tuesday night club, or participation in the worship service, or preparing the Lord's Supper before we come in here, or cleaning the building on a Thursday night, or making that cup of tea, or pouring that glass of water or making that difference in someone else's life by taking care of them. Love is that which builds us up as a congregation that holds us and binds us together. A common love that we have for one another. Love is that which holds the church together. Some will remember a girl called uh, Irina. Uh, Irina Heinemeyer uh, from Romania who was adopted by Mike and Susan Heinemeyer. And the reason I mention her is because some might remember in the 1980s, particularly towards the end of the 1980s, and she'd been over for a number of years before that, but when Ceausescu was overthrown, they discovered the orphanages. And they had children in there who were mentally, physically, and socially crippled. They were just weak-minded, we might say, to to be generous, I suppose. Children who had grown up and are now young adults who just are permanently affected mentally because from the earliest age there was no love in their life. No affection. The advert I remember 
uh, about appeals for the Romanian children was this child doesn't cry because he's learned that when he cries nobody comes brethren if we cry out and we are in pain spiritually if we are in pain emotionally and we cry out and nobody comes to our help what does that say about us as a church? What will that mean to the individual who is in pain? What consequences will it have to their soul, to their eternity? To the point that they may even just stop crying. Because nobody ever comes. And their grief consumes them. Love has to hold us together. It is a climate that allows us to grow. If you've ever been to the Botanical Gardens in Glasgow, or visited for that matter the Botanical Gardens in Edinburgh, I remember when I was there some friends visited from the United States, and I was working, and a friend who was American and a member of the church in Sight Hill said, I'll pick them up, and we'll keep them busy for a couple of hours while you make your way home from work, Graham. And they took them to the Botanical, just got off the plane, first thing they go is the Botanical Gardens. And they arrived in Scotland in June, and they went, oh, it's nice, it's a little bit cold though, isn't it? I mean, it's only, what, 70 degrees Fahrenheit today? Scottish you know, heat wave was on the way. So they took them to the Botanical Gardens, and they walked and went, ah, oh, this is more like Florida. Humid, it's warm, look at the lush vegetation that's growing all over the place. In Florida they don't have seasons, trees just decide one day to drop their leaves while other trees just carry on blossoming. And because the weather doesn't change significantly throughout the year. If the climate is correct, certain things will grow. People laugh when I go to the States, maybe Adam's experienced, maybe Ronnie's experienced this as well. What sort of trees do you have in Scotland? Oh, we've got pine trees. Well, we've got some oak trees, not so many of them, and I've noticed. Birch trees, I suppose, they kind of go. But lots of pines, lots of conifers, oh, and palm trees. Palm trees in Scotland, yeah, but just in the west coast, where it's warm enough. Like Lewis and Harris in southeast, because of that Gulf Stream, you see. How far north are you? Well, north of Canada. And you've got pine- palm trees. But you see, if the climate's good enough, things will grow. There's a reason that the papaya grows in the Philippines. But Adam can't get them to grow in his back garden. I remember as a child we, we took seeds in school and we planted them. We had apple seeds and I don't know what else we had. We had apple seeds, that's all I remember. And I brought in an orange pip. And the teacher says, what are you going to do that? I'm going to grow an orange tree, miss. She says, well, best of luck with that. And it grew. She says, what are you going to do with it now? She's going to plant it in my garden. And it died. Because oranges don't grow in Scotland. It doesn't work that way. The climate's wrong. But if, cli- if the climate of the church is love, we'll not only grow, we'll blossom, we'll flourish, and we'll produce in abundance. Because love is the food that nourishes us. Love is the food that strengthens us. Love is also to be the motivating power of the Christian leader. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 11, Paul says there, Why? Because I don't love you. God knows that. When you go on and read the rest of that chapter and look at the many sufferings that Paul endured for the sake of the gospel, can you question Paul's love for people? Can you question Paul's love for truth? Can you question Paul's love for God? And if you can still read that chapter and at the end of it say, yeah, I think we can still question that, then by all means let me see your Bible. I'll tear it up and give you one that actually tells the truth about what Paul experienced in that time. Because everything that Paul went through was because of love. And there's no way anyone would do what Paul did for the Corinth and other congregations except by the motivation of love. Adams used the illustration of the wee boy who was willing to give a pint of blood to save his sister's life. 
and thought he was given all his blood. And how often have we spoken about Christ? Meals, scraps of leather, and a guard around him. But the only thing that really kept him on that cross was love. Luke says he could have called 10,000 angels. Legion upon legion. Did he? No. He could have. Why didn't he? Because of his love. His love for his God, but his love for us. In 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 15, I will, be, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. That doesn't even make sense. And yet, sadly, that often seems to be the response that so many have. How much love do we have for people? And at times we feel that they're taken away, and if it's just been insane. And yet, Paul is still motivated by love. Paul says, if that's what it takes to demonstrate my love for people, let it be. He'd rather it wasn't, but he perseveres with his love anyway. In chapter 2 and verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. If we are to be leaders, leaders in our homes, leaders in our communities, but in particular leaders in the church, we have to be people of love. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul reminds the evangelist, I'll say young because he's about my age when he writes this, or at least Timothy is when he receives this, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. I lost my place there. In faith and in purity. What kind of example are you to the people around you? You're sitting there just now. You're trying your best to listen to Graham. You're trying your best to stay warm. You're trying your best to stay interested for whatever's less. Perhaps that maybe applies to you. But when you look at the people around you, what leadership do you provide to their lives? I think uh, Siobhan and Scott, who are involved in the Malawi board, and I look at the people around them. And I'll ask, what sort of leadership are they providing? When we see these girls at the front, for example, they'll have their, however much their purpose to set aside, and they'll run over and they'll make sure Siobhan gets that. So it helps the Malawi board. Many of you are motivated. Many of you are glad to see Paulina here in the morning. We don't always see Paulina in the morning. Recently it seems that way. What leadership is Paulina providing in your life? Or Brian? Or Ronnie? Or Aidy? And we look around and we see that we are examples to one another. What example are you setting? An example of love. Second Timothy 3 and verse 10. You have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, and my perseverance. You can't get away from it. Paul cared about people. In Second John, which we mentioned we would go to earlier, in verse 1, the elder, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. Not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. John was the disciple of love. We call him that. We call him the beloved disciple. His writings, first, second, and third John, all speak volumes about his love for people. The Gospel of John all speak volumes 
all, every chapter speaks volumes of the love that God had for man and the love that Christ had for man in doing what he did to save us from our sins and the impact that that had in his life. And John as a leader, as an elder, as an apostle, expressed his commitment to loving the brethren. And third John in verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. John was willing to even write a letter. Did John write a letter to you? No, but he wrote one to Gaius. He wanted Gaius to know how much he cared about him. He wanted Gaius to know how much of, of a comfort he was to John in his life because of his faith. Let anyone who seeks leadership in the church, who seeks it for the purposes of gaining prestige, prominence or power, be struck down from any advance in that. And let that individual's ego give way to meekness. Let humility take control of that individual and not pride. Let the Christian leader instead be motivated by his love to serve God. Let him be motivated by his love to serve his fellow Christians. Because if we fail to provide true love in our leadership, it's always going to stunt the growth of the congregation. If we, if we fail to provide true leadership in our homes as fathers and as husbands, and demonstrate love through every aspect of our life and in those circumstances, then we will prevent our families from ever being all that they can be for the glory of God. Our love for our wives will be less than it could be. And to mothers who provide leadership to their children, as the fathers do as well, if love is not a controlling influence in your life, it will prevent you from fully, fully making a difference in that individual's life. For all the things that I say about my mother... I hope that nobody doubts that I love her. I'll tease her, I'll torment her, and I'll make fun of her cooking. For good reason. But I love her. Because I know how much she loves me. And you all better not make fun of me in front of my mum, or she'll get you. So just be warned. Love is not only the motivating power of the Christian leader. Love is also the attitude of the Christian towards leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 13. Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace amongst yourselves. In the Hebrews, uh, in the Hebrews epistle, whoever writes that, uh, I think it's in chapter 13, talks about the elders and respecting the elders and honoring the elders because they have to give an account of your life to God. They have a responsibility for your life, for your soul. So let them not give that account in grief. I think it's in verse 17. We don't have an eldership. But we are blessed with good, I think, good strong spiritual leadership. And some may look at me and say, well, maybe you're part of that, Graham, and you're just saying that for your own benefit. But I think we are. Because I've benefited from it. I've benefited from the, the leadership of strong, faithful Christians in this congregation. I hope that I provide the same to other people as well. But what makes a difference to that is if our own attitude towards those who have a leadership influence in our lives is one of love toward them. Leadership's no easy job. I get emails from some friends in America about President Barack Obama. I'm waiting for one that talks about how great he is and what a good job he's doing and all the rest of it. I'm not really expecting one. And we may have our own opinions about it politically. But see if we draft that into the church, how much harder is it to do a job when everyone's a critic? 
When everyone's got a judgment to make about you. When everyone has an attitude that affects whether or not leadership can be influential in our lives. As brethren, we must not be seduced by an attitude of criticism. Criticism can often be negative. Criticism can often be applied just merely to tear people down and not to build them up. Criticism can be applied. There is an aspect of critical thinking and critical approach to how we do things that's necessary. Criticism itself comes from the, uh, the word of judge, of making it a discerning decision about what's right and wrong and arriving at the right thing. But we're looking at the negative aspects of it. And so oftentimes we are seduced by it. We get into pity parties. We get into cliques or groups where we can gossip about one another and brethren, it destroys the body. Don't be seduced by an attitude of discontent. I'd have done it differently. Why didn't you do it anyway? Then somebody else wouldn't have had to do it. And you could have done it the way you wanted it done. And then you wouldn't have to complain about somebody else doing what you never did in the first place. How often do we experience that malcontent amongst people? How often do we hear people complaining about who's in power and how they're not doing things right? Did you vote? No. Well, you have any right to complain then, do you? Well, this person and that person. Let me tell you a story about someone that I came across. Got this from a friend in the States, Greg. Some of you remember Greg Nash. He'd written a, a, a story in a, an article in the Bulletin Centre across. There was a member of the congregation who was there every time. Sundays, Wednesdays, because they had a midweek Bible class, they had a Thursday night Bible class. Don't know why, but there you go. Prayer meetings and things like that. But then he stopped coming Wednesday night. I mean, he was there most of the time, but he, every other Wednesday he stopped coming to the midweek Bible class. And eventually he just wasn't there at all. Then he stopped coming on, on a, on a, to the prayer meetings. Occasionally he'd be there and eventually he just wasn't there at all. People started getting upset though when this person stopped coming on a Sunday night. First it was just every other Sunday. But after a while just they weren't there every Sunday. But the final straw came when they didn't show up Sunday morning. So the elders asked him to come in and he sat down and he says, Look, we noticed you weren't with us Sunday morning, where were you? He says, well, the autumn had arrived, the leaves were turning, it's so beautiful up in the mountains. I thought, I'll go for a drive and just see all the beauty of the countryside. And to be honest, I saw that many members of the church on the way up there, I didn't think anybody would miss me. And the elder said to him, says, well, I'm sorry. We're going to have to fire you and hire a new preacher. Because this is unacceptable. Well, what we expect of some, why don't we always expect it of ourselves? We'd be shocked. Adam didn't come tonight because he's supposed to I'll be shocked because he's supposed to be preaching I'll be disappointed as well and yet how often do we treat our attendance in the worship service as a thing of discontent as a thing to be set aside as a malcontent because of whatever situations we present themselves don't be seduced by an attitude of resentment I'll go if he's not there I'll do if He's going to be embarrassed by my doing it. And so on and so forth. That speaks too much about our feelings as Christians. As we march to heaven, let love be the anthem of our hearts. You know, you go by war movies and things like that. But it actually happened. When boys who had enlisted went off to war, whether it was off to fight in France or Africa, or Asia. As they marched, they sang, It's a long way to Tipperary. Daisy, Daisy, my body lies over the ocean. They sang those songs. It was an anthem in the heart because they were doing something that was important to them. 
And what was important to them was where they really wanted to be. Not in Ypres. Not at Tobruk. Not in Burma. But with their families. The people where they understood what love was. We're marching towards heaven. Let the song in our lips always be our love for one another. God bless you.